Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the IPA Board of Pharmacy What, Why, and How podcast. My name is Brett Barker, and I'm excited to be joining you for this podcast. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, I've been around the Iowa pharmacy advocacy world for over 15 years now, and I'm excited to be back at the association in the role of Vice President of Government Affairs. Previously served on the IPA Legislative Advisory Committee, on the IPA Board of Trustees, and on the Iowa Board of Pharmacy. So I'm really excited to come full circle here and have this conversation with you today. With me, I have my colleague, Damian Thompson, and I will have him introduce himself for those of you that haven't met him yet. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Damian Thompson, Director of Public Affairs for the Iowa Pharmacy Association. I'm very new to advocacy in pharmacy, but not new to advocacy. Uh, I've been uh, in the lobby at the state capitol for a few years, and before that, I actually worked in state government. So I'm very excited uh, to be joining the podcast now for the future. I've always wanted my own talk show, and so this is, I think, my first big step. Um, so yeah, and I'm sure I'll be seeing many of you at our uh, legislative day, or for those of you that are active in our advocacy efforts, um, we'll be working a lot together. So very excited to be here. And Damien and I are really excited to be working together as a new government affairs team with IPA. And so, uh, Casey left some big shoes to fill, so we'll be doing our best to do those. So you can reach out to both of us, uh, through our IPA emails, um, at any time. So um, for today's podcast, we want to welcome Sue Mears from the Iowa Board of Pharmacy. And so, you know, having worked with Sue at the Board of Pharmacy, I can tell you she's an incredible asset to the board and we're very blessed to have her do this podcast with us because she's a wealth of knowledge and uh, it's great that our members have the opportunity to hear from her. So welcome, Sue. Thank you. Oh, that's very very flattering. Um, welcome to both of you. No, this is a you'll be a great addition to this podcast. So, it's great stuff. Okay, so Sue, uh, kicking off our program, um, what would you say, I mean, just kind of your highlight, uh, you had quite the agenda from yesterday, if you want to uh, talk a little bit about just the, the highlights or, or a main highlight that you might have? Um, well, I guess the, the board just did a lot of a lot of good work yesterday, um, moving forward with some good rulemaking for pharmacy security. Um, Moving forward with legislation, um, not too much from the board this year on legislation, uh, looking at some updating the rules relating to compounded preparations and veterinary office use. Um, so they just did a lot of a lot of good work like they always do. Great. And so before we get into some of the, the rulemaking that the board did, um, there were several federal issues that the board talked about that might be of interest to our members. Um, so I know we don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but then maybe folks can follow up on their own or provide their own comments. So um, the first one I had written down was um, Andrew reported on the FDA's EUA, uh, which is the emergency use authorization for the two new antiviral oral antivirals for COVID. So maybe Sue, if you want to talk about kind of what Andrew recapped and then how folks might be able to provide comment if they have any concerns about where those stand. Yeah, so I think the important thing um, to distinguish on the new antiviral therapeutics for COVID is that um, under the PrEP Act from the federal government, they had been, um, they've authorized pharmacists to order and administer some of the COVID countermeasures that are administered orally or intramuscularly or subcutaneously. And so 
Um, in the case of Regen Cove, that would have been something that under the PREP Act, a pharmacist can order and administer because it can be given IM. However, the newer, the newest monoclonal Evusheld and the two antivirals that just received emergency use authorization, those EUAs specifically designate which types of providers can order those products and pharmacists are not included in that. And so even with the PREP Act saying that pharmacists have, you know, this authorization to order and administer, you know, when and administered a certain way, these new products are excluded from that because the EUA is so specific that they can only be ordered by prescribers um, who are licensed in the state to prescribe that category of medication. So I think that's just something um, that's important for pharmacists to distinguish and understand um, that they would not be authorized to order. They would just, they would have the authority to dispense with the patient specific prescription like any other medication. Sure. And I know one thing that, that stood out to me is the legislature in Iowa had passed the authority for the board to have statewide protocols for COVID therapeutics. And so um, because of the way the EUA was written, the board was not able to proceed with a statewide protocol for those. So um, Damien and I were on a call yesterday with APHA and the state associations, and they're dealing with it to provide comment from the federal level. Um, and so, you know, if members have interest in that, they can reach out to either Damien or myself and we can direct them in the right way um, to connect on that issue. Um, also, Christy talked about the USP revisions and that comment period. Um, I don't know if Sue has any updates she would like to provide about, about that uh, comment period. I don't know the specific dates of the comment period, um, but I, I think it's I shouldn't say um, for how long. So yeah, Christy and Jean are our two resident experts for compounding and they're actively engaged in those FDA meetings um, in, um, sorry, no, the um, USP meetings on reviewing those newest proposed revisions. And um, so they're working on some potential comments on behalf of the board, but certainly licensees um, are able to, as far as I understand, are able to participate in those meetings as well and to provide whatever comments they have about those proposed revisions as well. Sure. And if uh, members would like more background on that, would Christy or Jean be the, the key people they'd want to reach out to? They would. Yep. Great. Yeah. And I, I will tell you those two know USP really well. So uh, you can find their contact info on the on the board website if you want to learn more about that comment period. Um, and then lastly, DEA has two comment periods open regarding telepharmacy and transfers of electronically prescribed controlled substances. So Sue, do you want to fill in membership about those two comment periods um, as well? Yeah. Yep. So as, as it relates to telepharmacy, the DEA is looking at some potential regulations uh, for telepharmacy. And so what they have done is they've put out a request for more information about the practice of telepharmacy, and they're asking for feedback on an, a number of questions. I think it's about 25 questions that they have relating to telepharmacy that they're asking for feedback and, and information about to help guide them in their proposed regulations. So the board has um, we've drafted some responses to those questions that we'll be submitting on behalf of the board. Um, but again, licensees are more than welcome to, um, to submit comments to DEA on those particular rulemaking dockets. Um, let me see if I have the, the docket numbers.
And the deadline uh, to submit comments for both of these um, pieces is January 18th. And for the telepharmacy, the docket number is DEA-759. And they should be able to Google um, or get onto DEA um, and, and search for that docket number to submit any comments that they have. And then the other um, is proposed regulations relating to the transfer of electronic prescriptions for schedules two through five controlled substances between pharmacies for initial filling. And so that they actually did put out what they proposed a rule change to be. And so that docket number is DEA 637. Um, and also deadline to submit comments would be January 18th for that. And the board will be submitting some comments on behalf of the board, but again, licensees can, um, can submit comments as well. Great, and IPA also will be submitting comments on those two issues. And yeah, we would encourage our members to be engaged on that as well. So uh, we'll transition into rulemaking here and I'll hand things over to Damien for the first part of that. Yeah, Sue, so, um... Some rulemaking was filed yesterday. Um, would you mind uh, just giving us a little bit of insight for our listeners on that? Yeah, certainly. So the board looked at three uh, three rulemakings. And so the first one is that they voted to adopt um, amending Chapter 39. And this is uh, just a simple rulemaking that updates the board's rule relating to collaborative practice um, agreements. And that's in response to IPA's bill from last session, Senate File 296. Um, and it really simplifies, um, doesn't get so much into the weeds on collaborative practice agreements, but it just gives those core elements and what's required to be part of that collaborative practice agreement. Um, so they did make a couple changes to what had been noticed. Um, based on questions that had come in during the public comment period. Um, comments had been, um, a couple comments suggested that the rules specifically identify physician assistants as being authorized um, signers to a collaborative practice agreement, but the board um, declined that suggestion because PAs have their prescribing authority delegated to them, and so they can't further delegate that prescribing authority. So PAs would not be able to um, be able to independently prescribe, so they can't be an independent practitioner on a CPA. So if you know if a pharmacy had a, a PA that they wanted to engage in with a CPA, they would just sign off with the the supervising physician in that case. Um, and then the, the another suggestion that had come in that the board did agree with was to specifically identify a hospital's P&T committee um, as an entity that can enter into a collaborative practice agreement within the hospital setting. So that change has been made. Um, and then the other change that was made was would is just to um, remove the provision that the pharmacy department has to maintain documentation of every pharmacist reviewing a collaborative practice agreement. They do expect every pharmacist to have reviewed that collaborative practice agreement, but the documentation doesn't have to be necessarily um, created and maintained by the pharmacy. It could be a human resources department um, or something electronic. Um, so they um, voted to adopt that. So I will get that filed here in the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, and then once it is published in the bulletin, it will be effective 35 days after that. Then they looked at um, and voted to 
file for notice of intended action amendment to chapter 20 in compounding and that proposes to allow veterinarians who have office stock compounded preparations that they've obtained either from a pharmacy or an outsourcing facility would allow them to further dispense that product in an emergent need to a veterinary patient if there's not a commercially available product available that would help that patient if the patient is likely to suffer harm um, if they don't have treatment um, and then they would want that supply limited um, to just an acute amount so they had some discussion about that and they settled on um, noticing a proposed 14-day limit to that kind of a supply being dispensed by the veterinarian so we'll get that filed um, it'll publish you know it might not um, the the process to get it to publication in the bulletin is several weeks it goes through has to go to the, the governor's office it has to go through um, the legislative services agency for some editing um, so it's it's a several week process before it will actually publish and once it's published then that We'll start the public comment period that's open for 20 days, um, and then the board will take a look at it again at, for potential adoption in the future. So uh, be on the lookout for uh, the board's press release. We put out a press release when rulemaking is published. So whether it's for notice or adoption, um, we put out a press release so people are alerted that this rulemaking has been published. And so then, you know, in the notice this case, that's when the public comment period starts. And then the third one that the board looked at is a little bit different of a scenario, um, and this is an amended notice of intended action. So what happened in this, uh, this was rulemaking that would get to the heart of pharmacy security and controlled substance accountability. And so where this all came from is that over the last several years, the board has seen um, just what they feel to be an unacceptable amount of um, cases involving lack of pharmacy security and lack of, of controlled substance accountability. So the purpose of this rulemaking is try to shore those things up, right, and to, to um, kind of put some, some guardrails in place so that pharmacies are using the necessary tools that they need to to secure that pharmacy and to make sure that they know what they have on hand for controlled substances and that they're accountable and that they can identify when they have a problem. So the board had published for notice of intended action uh, last August um, some potential rules relating to pharmacy security and accountability and that during that public comment period, the board received a number of comments, you know, with some serious concerns about some of the, the components of what had been proposed. And I think probably the one piece that had the most um, the most feedback in a negative way was the uh, um, the proposed requirement of perpetual inventory for all controlled substances. And so that that got a lot of feedback. And so the rules committee um, had some really robust discussions about all of these issues um, and how best to tackle them. So what the rules committee recommended to the board and what the board um, agreed to do um, during this meeting was to make some slight modifications. Um, I shouldn't say slight, um, pretty significant modifications to the rulemaking, and they're significant enough that it warrants putting it out again for another period of public comment. Um, their other option would have been to just terminate the rulemaking and just start from scratch, but they really um, weren't interested in doing that. They wanted to keep moving forward, um, and since there were significant enough changes 
then the amended notice was the route they chose to go. So some of the changes that were made um, from what had been originally noticed is that this new amended notice still includes a requirement that pharmacies maintain a basic alarm system and a video surveillance system, which would have to be in place by December 1 of this year. So still a lot of time to, to get that in place, but then it would also give some flexibility to that individual pharmacy to determine what level of alarm, what level of video surveillance, how long they're going to keep the recording, for example, um, would let the pharmacy make that determination based on their unique operation. And it would still require the pharmacy to maintain accountability of their Schedule 3 through 5 controlled substances, but gives them a range of options for getting to that point. So whether it's they choose to have a perpetual inventory, that's one option, or maybe they have um, routine cycle counts where every drug is hit, you know, every um, so often so that they are making regular attempts to make sure that those counts are on. It adds a requirement to develop and implement a corrective action plan in response to a theft or loss which specifically addresses the conditions which contributed to the theft or loss and it includes a requirement that it would have to include or they would have to uh, follow through on any guidance or recommendation that is provided by the board compliance officer you know we'll come out when we get a report of theft or loss theft or loss from a pharmacy and we'll go out and we'll you know we'll work through with the registrant what the situation what happened um, and we might have some ideas for them um, or give them some strong recommendations of what they need to do um, to get that fixed up so that doesn't happen again. And so this rule would require that their corrective action plan would include um, any directive given by the compliance officer in response to that theft or loss. And then it would also require that a pharmacy conduct a controlled substance inventory with every change in pharmacist in charge. Um, and our, our rule right now is a little um, nebulous, and I think the rule has this expectation that a pharmacy never is without a pick, um, that as soon as a pick leaves or, you know, is relieved of their service, whatever, that another pick is automatically just that there's never any lapse. And so I think, you know, the board has had instances where there has been a lapse. They don't like that. Um, but if there is a lapse, um, they are wanting to see um, a change, an inventory taken anytime there's a change in pick, whether it's a, a temporary or an interim. Um, so without wasting too much time um, for other things, those are kind of the highlights of this new amended notice of intended action. So it will get filed um, and then it will go out and get published which will start a new um, public comment period. And there will again be a hearing for this rulemaking as well that would give people an opportunity uh, to provide oral comments, you know, if they have different comments than what they submit um, in writing. So I think that's all there is on, on rules for this meeting. Okay, and then the last thing we'll ask you about, um, what can people expect for any legislative priorities coming from the board this session? Yeah, there's not a whole lot from the board this session. Um, should be pretty light from us. Um, from a pharmacy practice standpoint, the board just has 
one bill and um, the, the biggest component of it is to um, update actually the nursing code language that would specifically identify pharmacists as someone who could, um, who a nurse could um, follow through on a pharmacist order. I don't want to say delegate um, because nurses have their authority to do what they do under a prescriber's order. And so it would specifically identify a pharmacist as someone who can issue an order that a nurse then um, can follow through on as it relates to immunizations um, or maybe as part of a um, test and treat model, doing some of that patient specimen collection, those types of nursing activities just under the pharmacist order. Um, and then the other component of the practice bill um, just gets to the non-resident pharmacy license applications. And you know, we require in code that a non-resident pharmacy has to have um, a toll-free number on their on their label that a patient can get a hold of them a certain number of days and hours a week, but not every non-resident pharmacy dispenses directly to Iowa patients. Um, they might be involved in some um, central fill type situations. And so those entities don't really need to have direct patient interaction or patients wouldn't contact them directly. So we need to get that out of code so we can put it into rule and have a little bit more flexibility with those non-resident pharmacies that um, don't directly uh, dispense to patients. Um, and then the controlled substance PMP bill, controlled substance piece um, is just what we do every year where we permanently identify in code those substances that have been identified and scheduled at the federal level. Um, when DEA identifies a substance and they schedule it, um, then we take um, temporary action via rulemaking to get that item into Iowa code. And then every legislative session, then we file a bill to have them make it permanent. Um, so that's the, the majority of the board's controlled substance bill, but then there's also um, a component relating to the PMP that the board would like to make some adjustments to the PMP Advisory Council. Um, they've really struggled in the last several years to have adequate participation, so they would like to make some modification um, that it be um, not a governor-appointed board or advisory council, but it, that be a board appointed, um, and then to make some modifications to the composition of that so that they might have a little bit easier time uh, filling those roles and uh, to make sure that they can get a quorum to actually have meetings. They've kind of struggled with some of those things. So hope, hopefully trying to get to some of those issues that they've been having so that they can have um, so the advisory council can do the work that um, the legislature asked them to do. Great. Well, thank you, Sue. It was a great discussion today. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up for, for this podcast. Uh, we did mention that you could reach out to Damien or myself. So my email is bbarker at iarx.org and Damien's would be dthompson at iarx.org. So again, feel free to reach out to us. We're happy, happy to help with anything we can. So thanks again for coming on, Sue, and we'll see you next time. Sounds good. See ya. Thank you.